podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. If you're enjoying Red Inca but want to know more about Fred Spoffer's moustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from cricket's past, well, I have a history of cricket podcast called Double Century. And luckily for you, season three has just started. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app. This episode, we talk about how for the first time in cricket history, test averages have dipped below ODI averages. Recently, I found a really good blog on this, so I got the author to come and have a chat with me. My name is Daniel, and my day job is as a data consultant, but I moonlight with a hobby website called insightlane.com. Daniel and I talk about pitches, balls, the talent gap, the divergence of the formats, and the wobble scene ball. You wrote an article recently, and it's something that I think I've touched upon once or twice, but I've never written a complete piece on it, which is that for the first time in international cricket history, the average per wicket in ODI cricket is higher than test cricket. So, you know, as you would expect, mostly in test cricket, batters fare better because they're trying to protect their wicket and score runs. And then suddenly one day cricket has gone past it. Firstly, how did you find this? Other than, you know, obviously the many, many times that I've casually referenced it which I'm sure inspired you, even if you didn't know. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't find it first. I, I had it a hunch. Mm-hmm. And it's been something that's probably been niggling at me as a, as a casual cricket fan. Probably uh, I don't have the same exposure to it as yourself, Jared. Um, but as an Australian cricket fan who typically just follows the Australian summers and, and maybe an Australian tour to I- India or England, I just noticed that mostly in the Australian summers, two things were happening at the same time. One is that since about the 2015 World Cup here, I noticed that the past scores for ODI matches were just going off the chart around the world. So where I remember growing up and 220, 250 was typically par on an Australian pitch and, and that would sort of be considered a good to, to very good score. Following the 2015 World Cup, 300, 350, teams putting on 100 in the last 10 overs, this became you know almost standard or it felt like it became standard. And 350s plus became almost a very good score, if not not quite enough, sometimes in, in some of these ODI series we were, we were watching in Australia. At the same time as that, and again, it might have been my Australian bias, but I, I was noticing that the test arena was something different was happening. And that is that the ability for test batters to make significant runs, big hundreds for teams to put on big scores, 400, 500, 600, 700, that seemed to have dissipated altogether and that ball was actually starting to dominate over bats during test series. And so I thought to myself, this is really interesting because thinking about that risk versus reward trade-off, I wondered, is it that ODI batters are actually now doing better in runs per wicket, even though they have a reduced amount of balls to face, than their test counterparts? It's interesting too because it was so dramatic in test cricket I think we've been used to one-day cricket scoring more runs than almost every generation, so there's yep. been that curve. But what people didn't really seem to understand was that from 2000 to 2015, or, or 17 really, we had one of the greatest run-scoring eras ever. I mean, you could arguably say it was the best time to be a professional batter in test cricket. 
And then late 2017, someone puts on the brakes somewhere along the line. And um, we can now trace that back to fast bowlers and fast bowlers completely dominating. But there was a major difference there. So when you were looking at the overall numbers, is that what you sort of saw? One day cricket continuing to rise and test cricket sort of just dropping off a cliff? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, in terms of average runs per wicket, I think it's fair to say that over 50 years, there's been almost a, a linear trend for ODI cricket, continues to increase to this day. Whereas in the test arena, exactly right. I think in the late 90s to 2000, there was a bit of a boom and that's tailed off, particularly since about 2015, sort of past the half decade or so. Yeah, 2015 was a real high year, wasn't it, off the top of my head? There's a couple of really, really big scoring years in Test cricket. Overall, the history of Test cricket, I think the average per wicket has been about around 32. So I think if you're above 32, it's a batting year. And if you're below 32, it's a bowling year as a general rule. Mm. But I remember there was a couple of years in there where it just felt like everyone was making runs around the world. And what's really dropped off is even teams at home have stopped making runs. So generally what you, you might have, you might have the away teams all struggling in one go, which, which happens quite regularly, but you don't usually have the home players struggling at home. But if you look at, you know, players mm. in England and Australia and India, even the bigger countries, their batters have really struggled. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's probably what I was picking up on as a bit of a hunch, you know, watching my home team in home series, you know, anecdotally, one player could score multiple hundreds in a series. And then I think in the, in the latest series against India, and, and don't quote me on this, but there might have been one or two hundreds in the entire series of both teams to combine. So we've gone from one player scoring potential multiple centuries in one series to them becoming almost as rare as hen's teeth. And that's even the home team. So yeah, I think that was all part of it, which um, prompted me to look into the data. You talked about anecdotally, and I want to go back. You look a little bit younger than me, so I won't age you or anything here. But if if you watch any cricket in the 90s, which I think you might have, in the 90s, essentially, we were told that one-day cricket was completely ruining test cricket, that it was ruining test batting techniques, that players were too aggressive. We then went on to have the greatest ever batting era (laughs) that test cricket's ever had after Mm. that. What we're having now, though, is that test cricket actually did get more aggressive. That's something that you could see. So in that 2000 to 2015 period, as we're talking about, batters did get more and more aggressive. So some of the things that the commentators were worried about actually happened in that we got more aggression. The trade-off was that they also made more runs. What I found really interesting is, and now people are blaming T20 for this current drop-off, but actually the run rate in test cricket has dropped. Players are trying to hold on realistically now. There's... People always say to me, oh, you know, Pajara, he's the only defensive batsman. I said, you, you guys are going to go look at the list. There's heaps of them. There are so many defensive batters in world cricket right at the moment. And yet people are still not managing to hold on. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so when I looked at the data, um, I wasn't sure about this. So I, I had a hunch about the overall average and that, that turned out to be true. And, and not only is that true, but it's actually continuing in a downwards trajectory. It's not just it's slipped below, mm. it's, it's falling away and, and ODI is still shooting through the roof. But then um, to dig into it more deeply, I, I looked at batting strike rates and bowling strike rates. And you're exactly right. I remember in, in the late 90s to early 2000s, there was often that thing that I can even think of it, a Shane Warne video that I had, a Shane Warne VHS. And he was talking about how these days in test cricket, it's great because all the ODI skills are rubbed off on test cricket and there's no more draws. And we all bat, we were, you know, 4.5 runs and over. And that was the narrative at that time, mm. you know, that the ODI aggression and the risk taking had paid off and, and how exciting now is test cricket as a result. And the data shows that. But since about mid 2000s of the decade, mm. so, you know, the mid noughties, Looking at the data now, the batting strike rate, you're right, is actually tailing away and it's sort of falling back towards the level of the mid-90s and so on, where it probably was before that ODI 
effect supposedly rubbed off onto Test cricket. Yeah, and I think a lot of that was just simply that teams put sweepers out now. Like that point up until, I don't want to give Michael Vaughan too much credit because I know other captains had done it as well. But when Michael Vaughan started to do it against the Australians and go, well, okay, if they're going to hit fours all the time, let's just take their fours away and see what their patience is like. And we've seen that a lot. And, you know, you see spinners now starting with a long on and a deep mid wicket. And what the spinner will say is, this guy's still going to try and hit me for four and six. I'd rather have someone out there who's as likely to catch him as someone in the circle is, and I can stop the boundaries. So I think that is part of the reason that it has slowed down. So I think there is still an aggression there. I think the crux of your article that's, that's most interesting is that Test cricket is going completely one direction at the exact same time that both formats of white ball cricket are going the other direction. So it's not just that white ball cricket is scoring quicker, it's that the averages are going up. And I actually think in T20 cricket, that's probably an error, whereas I think in one-day cricket, that's probably the best way to go about it. If you can get guys set off 20 off 20 or 30 off 30, they can then you know score uh, you know 100 off 70 balls now because we know mm. that players can catch up. That's what was most startling um, to you, wasn't it? It's that sort of yeah. the fact that one's going in one direction and one, I don't know why I did it that way. One's going in one direction and one's going the other. Yeah. And, and it prompts me the question. I don't know the answer to this. And I think it's an open question. Because, and I think data could enlighten it, but I haven't gone to the next level of detail then. But it, 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 it sort of suggests to me, well, if, if 10 years ago, everything was tracking in the same direction, you can explain that by, I don't know, the quality of bats rules favoring batsmen i'm not sure you can you can have these macro factors that might explain mm. trends that are consistent across the board but if the trends are diverging by format it makes me think that there's something going on that is different per format you know i think there might be one or more answers to that um i've posed a few in, in the blog post but um i have no evidence to, to any of them myself one of the other things you talked about in that post is that the bowling strike rates in test cricket kept coming down so even as players uh, made more runs, um, and th I think it's continued to go down, haven't they? Yeah, so yeah. essentially what you have in Test cricket right at the moment is less runs and fewer balls faced than sort of almost any other era. I mean, it's really dropping off at quite a cliff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think there's two things happening. I think the, the batting strike rate in Test cricket has, has come back a little bit away from the boom in the 2000s, uh, back to maybe more traditional Test cricket levels. But at the same time, the batters are not gaining the additional balls faced of being of that conservatism or, or that lack of run scoring. So, the, yeah, as you said, the bowling strike rate has continued to fall over time. Uh, like if I look at over the last 50 years, it's almost a continual trend down. But they're not making more runs whilst they're there for shorter periods. Mm. So let's have a look at, you know, some of the things you mentioned in your piece, but we can add a few as well. So the, mm. one of the first mm. ones is that white ball cricket pitches, I think we've probably perfected what is a good white ball pitch like you know whether you you see it almost in anywhere in the world it is very rare to get a bowler friendly or a seam friendly yeah. white ball pitch you sometimes get yeah. spin friendly ones you sometimes get the ball swinging but it's very rarely to get that so i think that has to play a part i mean i think one thing that people don't really understand is that it is very easy to stand in your crease and smack the ball on the up through the covers on a white ball pitch compared to on a day three pitch of a test where things are just not as as still so that that has to be a part of it doesn't it yeah, so, so my question is, and maybe not knowing enough about pitch curation, is has that actually fundamentally changed? Has this, the strategy of governing bodies and so on, when trying to think about where ODI cricket fits in sandwiched between the traditional format and the, you know, the fireworks format, has that changed where previously, I don't know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, the pitches prepared for an ODI match might, may have been more similar to a test pitch and now they're chalk and cheese? And that could be by design or otherwise. 
that that could be one reason that, that it goes to explain the two. And indeed, perhaps even the other way around, test pitchers now almost trying to distance themselves a little bit from the run fests that are happening in the colour clothing and trying to bring back a little bit more of that balance between bat and ball and away from that boom that happened in the 2000s. That, that is a potential as well. Yeah, I, I think certainly what happened with white ball cricket is I think that the pitches have got better because curators now curate a lot more of them. So if you think before, yeah. if you were the MCG groundsman, you, you probably had to do a couple of list A games for Victoria, but Victoria often played it uh, out grounds. The MCG might get two or three ODIs a year, and it wasn't a big deal. Now with you know Melbourne Stars playing there and also you know Women's Big Bash uh, playing there, I think most groundsmen in the world – I'd be shocked if this isn't the case, are making more white ball pitches, but they're also being judged for them more. Whereas before, yeah. it didn't matter. There were so many games that were played in England, uh, for instance, when there was a lot of white ball cricket, that didn't really matter. Whereas once you get to T20 cricket and the stakes are a little bit higher and you want the crowds to be in, you want the crowds to be entertained, mm. I think that has changed quite a bit. So I think it's a combination of more white ball cricket being played and that white ball cricket being slightly more important. But you're not wrong. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt. I've never been able to get someone completely come on the record with this, but there is no doubt that around the world, the CEOs made a bit of a general push for, and New Zealand is one of the few countries that was against this, and I, I well, not against this, but haven't done this. I think Sri Lanka might be one of the others. But most of the countries around the world went, do you know what? We need to make our pitches better. So in West Indies, it was to help the fast bowlers because they hadn't had good fast bowlers in a long time. In South Africa, it was because they thought that opposition batters would struggle if the pitches were a little bit spicy. England wanted to go back to their strengths because they had a lot of seam bowling. So there was a lot of different changes around the world. And it, it seems to have even been the case in Australia. And, and it wasn't that long ago we were talking about how dull the Australian pitches were. And suddenly no one mm. seems to be able to make 100, as you said. So I mm. think that that has happened. So I think those pitches are, are very important. One of the other things that you mentioned specifically in the piece is that we're seeing the first real divergence of the formats. Up until yeah. now, everything has gone together because cricket has been one group, hasn't it? You know, you might have right. Michael Bevan in your team or Roger Harper in your team if you're the West Indies. But as a general yeah. rule, the Test and the one-day teams were very similar. That's gone. Yeah, and, and there, there was an interesting tweet that I, I really appreciated from someone who followed up on, on what I posted. And they, they alluded to the, and you'd be able to unpack this for me, but they alluded to the fact that your ultimate Test bowlers are no longer necessarily your ultimate short-form bowlers, whereas they used to be. So these particularly seam bowlers who are leading that revolution that you're referring to where ball is, is winning over bat in test cricket, they're not necessarily the front liners in, in the ODIs and definitely not in the T20s where, where that is being you know, driven by from a different cohort, a different demographic. So I wonder if that divergence is, is also there, whereas in the generation when I was a kid growing up, certainly your front liners in the test team were also taking the new ball in the one day team as well. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I suppose Ishan Sharma, Jimmy Anderson, trying to think of some of the others, perhaps Shannon Gabriel, Kima Roach, there, uh, Trent, uh, Trent Southey, I'm just putting the two of them together, and Tim Southey. There's a few guys at the moment who are absolutely blitzy in Test cricket. Neil Wagner's another one who aren't even relevant in T20 cricket. Mm. And some of them don't play T20 cricket. Some of them don't play yep. much one day cricket as well. So I think that is certainly part of it. I, I, I think I wrote about that a while ago that it was maybe the first time in history that we had the best Test bowler wasn't the best white ball bowler. And that was when Stain was the best Test bowler and Malinga was the best white ball bowler. Stain actually went on to get very good at it. It's just that I suppose he only has so much time in the day. And you see, mm. you can see with Pat Cummins, I don't think Pat Cummins is a particularly bad T20 bowler, but 
again, there's only so much time in the day. And in the same way that I still think Mitchell Stark would be the best white ball bowler in the world if he actually spent a lot of time doing it. But Australia seemed to rest him for everything and he doesn't go to the IPL. Mm. That wasn't happening before. You know, Joel Garner and Glenn McGrath and these guys, they were playing consistent white ball cricket and becoming, you know, the best at that as well. So I think that is certainly part of it. The, The skills are different. Although I remember talking to Steve Harmison not that long ago and he actually said that he thought that test bowling had been improved because the extra skills that you had to get for white ball cricket had come across. And one of the things he said was just accuracy. You didn't have to be that accurate before. Whereas now, I always use Billy Stanlake as a perfect example of this. Billy Stanlake Stanlake should be the best bowler in the world because he's six foot 10 and he bowls 95 miles an hour. Billy Stanlake can't even get in the Australian test team. Uh, He doesn't play regularly for Australia. He doesn't play in the IPL because he's not accurate enough now. And players have are not as, as worried about, um, uh, you know, just someone coming in and bowling it fast. So there is a definite shift um, in all that. And I think the other thing is worth talking about. I mean, we talked about the, the, the bowling there, but just pure batting. I still think that Chris Lynn would have been a phenomenal test talent in another era. He may not have averaged 50, but he might have been someone who could come in and bat at number five and number six and average 40 and absolutely bludgeon teams. He just doesn't play first-class cricket. And Nicholas Puran, yeah. again, I don't even know if Nicholas Puran will play test cricket. I think he will. But, you know, he's now – Nicholas Puran is 25 and has played five first-class games. Like, it's yeah. a completely different universe. We're talking about yeah. some of the most talented cricketers in the world are not even going near Red Bull cricket. Yeah. And, and I, and I harked a, a little bit on that as well, that the pathways are now there to, to make a living, make a good living, whilst not playing test cricket, whereas – I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, if if you weren't playing test cricket or, or international cricket for your nation, which effectively was test cricket, um, I wonder if there were were many pathways to, a, you know, a comfortable or, or a, at least um, the elite level of, of a professional wage. Now, there are. So, um, it, it, as you said, those incentives might be providing options for, for the very best to focus on one format rather than necessarily broadening and focusing on all three at once. Yeah. No, 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 I think you're right. And I, I want to bring up the professional thing because I, I this is very interesting in, in, in quite a few different ways. If you look at women's cricket, uh, which, which you, you haven't got in your data, to no. be fair, we don't have enough test matches for, for, yeah. to, to show much anyway. But if you look at women's cricket in T20 cricket, it, it's on a much steeper curve up when it comes to scoring rates than the men's game is. And that's because during the T20 era, women have basically gone from amateur to professional. Not completely. There's still quite a few teams that are not. But, you know, we now have women who travel the world as professional cricketers, which was not the case when T20 cricket started. And I've been thinking about that a lot with the white ball game as well. I think a lot of the white ball game was in addition to the red ball game. It wasn't, you know, uh, outside of Asia, one day cricket wasn't really um, taken seriously in the 90s. Uh, You know, you still have players. I remember interviewing Ricky Ponting about this and I was like, why did you take it seriously? And he's like, I didn't realize everyone wasn't taking it seriously until I got to the Australian team. And he's just like, so I just kept playing it the way that I had. But up until that point, players hadn't. And you didn't always get respect for that. So I think that's a big part of it. And the other thing is that they're just, when when there is a financial sort of, you know, like a capitalist model there, it makes sense that all these players are going to be following it and and we've already talked about the talent, but also just skill acquisition and, Mm. you know, getting better at the game and having to perform to make more money. 
That has not mm. always been 100% how cricket has gone because you could be the second mm. best wicketkeeper in Australia and never play a test, right? Yep. Whereas now if you're the second best uh, wicketkeeper batsman in T20 cricket, it doesn't matter if the first best place for your country because you're going to be traveling the world, making a lot of money. So there's a reason for you to continue to d- develop. So I wonder if there's a divergence there that we can only ever fit uh, you know, 120, 150 test players in at a time, whereas there are probably 400 T20 players um, yeah. around the world who travel quite regularly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's just a bigger pool uh, and a bigger pool towards that. That's right. And, and if I think about that, putting myself in their shoes, which I cannot do, but but um, <laughs> bear with me for one one minute. If you know, if there are more opportunities in a, in the shorter format uh, matches through or, or, or format through franchises and so on. Um, more likely you're going to get your foot in the door through one mm. of those to begin with. And if you start paying the wages through, um, you know, a franchise through the IPL or some other uh, tournament um, and, and, you know, it starts being quite lucrative, well, are you going to risk broadening your approach and expanding your horizons or are you going to continue to focus on what's working well for you and what can continue to work well for you in, in that regard? I'd probably suggest you do the latter, um, you know, rather than it's almost a bird in the hands worth two in the bush. Um, and I think maybe there's obviously the exceptions there. We're, we're talking, we're not talking about the, you know, the Coley's and, and the so on, no. who are masters of all three formats. But we're talking about that next tier down, who 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 make up the the um, the the bulk of these sides. So uh, and, and probably actually one thing would be interesting to look at is to see the now that I think about it, to see the um, the spread or the mix of, of players between formats. You know, as we we, we spoke about. Um, you know, 30 years ago, the, the one-day side was the test side, and it'd probably be worth looking at to see how that act- that mix is now diluted and, and what proportion of players play across all three or, or two formats uh, consistently for their, their nation. Yeah, I, I someone has done that piece, and I can't remember off the top of my head, but it certainly mm. is, it is separating. So mm. I think the good cricketer rule still applies. So even if you're Jax Callis and you might be a not the greatest T20 cricketer because he was an all-rounder um, and could face the new ball, he's still worthwhile in a T20 team at, at times. Um, so there's still that good cricketer rule, but it's that sort of level below your, your top four, your top six players where I think it, almost anything anything can come and go of it. But then mm. you, you just have players as well. Like th- There have been a lot of players who I think could have been much better at test cricket but have spent so much of their extra time just not playing it that we don't see them as, as multi-format mm. players anymore, whereas in a generation mm. before, they probably would have been that way. Mm. So, I mean, th- that's really, really interesting. The other thing that mm. I think we have to talk about, and I don't think we mention this enough in cricket, is the white ball is completely rubbish and uh, yep. has always been rubbish. They don't help spinners because they get soft. They don't help quicks because they swing for a little while um, and then disappear. They, they don't seem... Um, they they degrade so comically quickly that um, you get to a point when you match that together with all the other stuff we're talking about more uh, you know bigger bats stronger batters more attacking people understanding you know how to hit to their zones and all those sorts of things it's mm. almost the white ball is almost letting the bowlers down to a certain point because once you get to well in a T20 game almost once you get to the you know eighth over. Uh, it's almost useless for the spinners and the quicks. Um, mm. And in a one-day game, it's also because we're replacing, we're using two, so we've got a one yeah. at each end. We're not having enough time for it to reverse. And even if it did reverse, it basically half the time it, it reversed and it was so soft that it sort of dribbled at the end of the game. Mm. So it, it helped the bowlers, but it completely kind of ruined the spectacle, a spectacle of, mm. of the hitting at the end. So it wasn't really um, a good thing. 
So there is a key difference here in the fact that white balls are painted and degrade and act poorly. And red balls uh, genuinely, uh, generally now, especially since kookaburra balls have got a little bit better, um, last longer and help the bowlers a lot more. Mm. And, and I wonder, just thinking about that, you know, we, we spoke 10 minutes ago around how the, you know, the bowling strike rate, uh, balls per wicket in test cricket has fallen consistently over time, certainly the past 50 years. When I looked at it for ODI cricket, it's effectively flat across its 50-year history. It's actually risen a little bit. So bowlers are taking slightly fewer wickets per, or are taking more balls to take to take a wicket in, in ODI yeah. format and T20 format in recent years. But it's, it's close to flat over time. Um, and, and, you know, maybe there's something there as well where the batters are actually capitalising, but the, unlike in test cricket, the bowlers are unable to make those inroads that they are able to make with the red ball uh, with, you know, uh, modern techniques and more accuracy and so on. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about that a little bit because I, I find that really fascinating. And this is kind of my new obsession um, every time I find a new bowler who's averaging 21, who I previously thought couldn't bowl. Mm. Um, shout mm. out to Sharanga Lakmal if you're listening. But uh, it, that, these are a bunch of things that, that I have come up with. And I came up with this sort of reading your piece, but also they, they've been in the back of my head for a little bit. The, the first one is obviously analysis. So the fact that we now come around the wicket to left-handers uh, yep. straight away rather than waiting for them to already be 80 um, is a big difference. And we have certainly found that for years we thought that was a terrible tactic, but now that we don't have um, outswing bowlers, right-arm bowlers are not outswing bowlers anymore, and now the DRS has also come in, I think there's certainly been a big um, change there. The other one is, is something that probably hasn't been talked about enough, but the wobble scene delivery. Mm. So, you know, if you watch Pat Cummins bowl, you can never tell which way he's going to be moving the ball at any time. And if you can do that consistently at 90 miles an hour, I think that's huge. Um, I talked to the New Zealanders about this. They said that Tim Southey's big change was pro probably the wobble seam as much as, as much as him maturing. The other thing is better coaching. And when I mean better coaching for bowlers, what I mean is before I think we let bowlers bowl their best delivery, but now because we know more through the analysis, it's like, uh, okay, we need to bowl around the wicket to this guy. You now need to practice bowling around the wicket. So here's some tips on you who've never done it before and how to do it. Whereas before, I remember when, when, when analysts first came into the game, some poor analyst like me would have to say to a guy, you have to bowl around the wicket. And he'd be like, I've never done it before. How, how do I do that? And the guy in the laptop would sweat a lot. Uh, the other thing is you can look at, uh, at someone like Neil Wagner is fitness levels. The fact that Neil Wagner can bowl 10 over straight of bounces uh, that's mm. just not something, you know, the West Indies had to slow the game down to 70 overs a day to bowl their bounces. Players are just fitter, uh, and that helps with fast bowling. Um, and then, as, as we said, the ball. So there's, that's a lot of different things coming together in one period that mm. really we were, we were edging towards in different ways. But we've had a big boom in analysis, and I think we've had a big boom in, in fitness levels in international cricket. And if you add the fact that we now have a delivery where batters for the first time ever can't really read the ball completely out of the hand and understand what's going to happen. The, the combination of those things makes sense to have a dip in, in one day in test cricket, whereas there's nothing that I've just said there other than the analysis um, that yeah. can really help one day cricket as much because bowlers could always sort of get through their 10 overs. It's the 20 over spells in one day in test cricket that are more of a trick. So you can see why there are a lot of things that are really helping test bowlers that aren't helping one day bowlers as much. Mm, yeah, I think I think it's interesting. I think from an analysis point of view, um, I would ex not being close to the industry, but I would expect that analysis should be helping in the same way that it's helping batters. It should be helping bowlers um, find the weaknesses in batters more easily and potentially dry up runs. Whereas we're seeing strike batting strike rates go through the roof 
at yep. the same time as they're not able to take as many wickets, which I find interesting. It might be also explained by explained it away by some of the factors we spoke about off the top, some of the more macro trends. Um, yeah. But but you're right. I think uh, it probably leans more heavily to to the red ball game than the white ball. Yeah, well, just what you said with the analysis. I've I've never actually done um, the analysis job with the red ball, so uh, a lot of this is talking to friends. But essentially, at a certain point, if if someone's got a weakness, let's say they've got a weakness around their top of middle stump, and eventually they're going to go across the stumps and they're going to try and flick one, and you know you can get them out LBW. You can only bowl that ball in limited overs cricket so many times because essentially then they're going to know what you're going to do and they can counter that. In test cricket, that, that, that gameplay doesn't exist. Bowling your best ball or bowling a ball that to a batter's weakness, you can bowl six in a row, 12 in a row, 18 in a row, 24 in a row if you're Vernon Philander, right? That doesn't quite exist in, in one-day cricket because of the way one-day cricket is. A, they'll shuffle across and they'll get an edge onto their pad and they'll, and, and they'll go down to fine leg for four. And so suddenly you're already thinking about this sort of things differently. So there is a... There is a real disconnect between the way that the two uh, are, are bowling. And when you talk about analysis, I, this is the thing that I find really interesting. Almost all the analysis breakthroughs that I've seen in, in the game are either help captains, which is usually something that, that goes against batters, or um, helps um, uh, bowlers. There's very little analysis you can give for, for batsmen. Now, I remember talking to Ian Bell, when was this, 2013-14, and just saying, what do they give you? And he went through, like, all the list of all the things that they gave. And I was like, is that, is that helpful? Like, I almost mm. feel like, you know, Mitchell Stark's going to bowl more Yorkers in the 60th over. Okay, but are you now – I'm not sure a guy who can bowl 92-mile-an-hour left-arm seam, knowing he's going to bowl more Yorkers, is particularly as helpful as saying, well, Ian Bell um, uh, is going to score here. So if we put three fielders in this place, he's going to struggle. It just feels like there's a big disconnect between the two. And that might be where the next breakthrough is. Mm. And when you say that the white ball keeps getting better, I would say that I think in 2009, the runs per over in T20 cricket was 7.57. Don't ask me how I know that. Um, And in this year, it's currently 8.1. So that, We've gone up half a run and over, which, which is big. But considering all the money, uh, considering that the, um, uh, the power hitting has become a bigger thing, considering that the West Indies in that period revolutionised everything, um, that the bats have got even uh, even better in that period, I almost feel like in some ways white ball cricket has has got a lot better, but maybe not quite to the level that we thought. If you go back to that great Australia um, South Africa game, um, when was that? Two thousand and six ish, whenever when they when they both made a million runs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And at that stage, we thought that that's what one day batting was going to be. We're still yeah. at the point where I think, I, I think the average score in a one day game is about 265 or 270. So we've certainly had changes, but we haven't had maybe the big boom, even on the white ball game that we've had. It's just that uh, for me, that the biggest change is the fact that batters are now really good at, at keeping their wickets and scoring in white ball cricket and in red mm. ball cricket right at the moment, the complete opposite. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I, I had a look at, um, I didn't add this in the blog post, but I had a look at this before I came on and actually um, forgetting average for a minute, because I'm aware that there are there are elements to average, batting average that, that I haven't considered. For example, um, you know, innings closed, shorter innings closed in, in say, test cricket um, uh, when, when, when a team becomes victorious or, or declares and so on. I'm not necessarily completing, uh, comparing 
um, a full set of uh, a full innings versus another full innings. If, yep. if say only the top four batsmen are there, we, we'd obviously expect a higher a higher average than the whole list. Um, so I haven't got to that level, but but I, what I did quickly look at um, was was uh, looking at completed innings, uh, the average completed innings score for for both Test and ODI uh, cricket in the past five year or five six years. Mm. And for completed for Test innings, I called it if you're all out, uh, ten out. And for ODI, it was either 10 out or 50 overs, one or the two. Mm. And, you know, you sort of think, well, it, it should be easier to make um, a bigger score in 10 overs and unlimited time, uh, sorry, 10 wickets and unlimited time versus 10 wickets and only 50 overs. But actually, just looking at the, the completed innings, um, ODI cricket has also jumped ahead. So when you call that out as, as, you know, the past score, I think 265 or something is the average score. Test cricket's now down to about 245 uh, in, in the most recent year. So... Um, even accounting for that, we, we still see that change. And it, it feels to me as much as anything that they are now separate sports. Mm. And I think they were probably separate sports back in 1971. Um, it's just that we didn't think about them that way. And T20 cricket has probably made us think that these are separate sports. And I know that, you know, there's a big push from from some of the Twitterati on, on cricket for a while there um, saying we T20 is a sport. One day cricket is a sport and test cricket is a sport. It feels now probably for the first time ever that it, that is an unarguable position, mm. that they are completely mm. different. It does a bit like motor car racing. And I always use, uh, you know, motor car racing here, but if you are a very good driver in the Dakar rally, I'm sure you would be very good in the Indy 500 and other forms, but, Essentially, that there are now dips, the skills are so different that it would it would take time to get used to them, and you would have to retrain yourself. And we're mm. not really making that in cricket because some of these guys are just having to do it. And so, I I would suggest that that's where we're at. It, you know, one day cricket is now made for big scores, and that's what we want it to be. Yep. And red ball yep. cricket, at least in the short term, has been made so that the bowlers have a bit more of an advantage. Because I think, yep. and I think in both cases. I think that's actually what fans more or less want. They might want the, yeah. you said 247, they might want it to push back up to 300 in test cricket, right? But essentially, yeah. if you said if you said to one day fans around the world, the average score would be 300, which most of them think it is anyway, despite the fact we're not there yet. But if you said that to most uh, white ball fans around the world, I think they'd take that, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. And, and I was, I, I posed that hypothesis through, through the post as well. I thought, you know, if we've got fireworks batting T20, um, 300 plus, you know, boundaries and sixes ODI. Do we really want another batting heavily favoured format as number three? I mean, it's just going to be a watered down version of the other two again, right? So it makes sense actually that the, the, the traditional contest has become more ball versus bat because we don't see that as much elsewhere. So it provides it provides a, a bit of a smorgasbord, I guess, for the cricket fan. Um, and and I, I like what you said about the two different sports because what really kicked off the, this post was uh, in February this year, and um, you know, keeping one eye on um, uh, keeping one eye on on cricket happening around the world. Um, it, it was the same day that New Zealand and Australia both put on two hundred and fifteen plus in a T twenty afternoon. At the same time as there were uh, a, a fewer runs scored in an entire Test match between England and India uh, in India. Uh, sorry, yes, in India. So. Um, uh, I just found it funny that a four-hour match actually put on more runs than a five-day match, and that's what really thought, you know provoked me to go. Oh, let's look into this and what's going on here because it feels like I'm following two different sports on the same quick info page. 
Yeah, I, I was commentating for TalkSport at that time and we found the whole thing hilarious. We kept bringing up the other score because it, it was so different. No, no, you're right. And as someone who started covering Test Cricket in 2007, it was a turgid era. Like there's some good cricketers mm. and, and some very good cricket was played, but this is just more fun. Uh, the, the Test mm. Cricket has now been a lot more fun. And I would say that one day mm. cricket now is better to watch than it was for a lot of that period, maybe especially in the late 90s to early 2000s. So I, I think in some ways we're, we're getting towards a better version of both games. But Daniel, yeah. thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Mm-hmm.